Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Today, I'm welcoming Atlanta-based artist Craig Dungoski. Craig's work is especially interesting to me because it explores uh, sort of an intersection of a variety of different artistic approaches, which is one of the things that I set out to do with this podcast. I first became aware of Craig's work through some mutual friends of ours in the new music group Bent Frequency at Georgia State University. My friend and fellow percussionist Stuart Gerber teaches there, and I remember him telling me about this collaboration with Craig that featured uh, some amplified sounds of drawing and writing, and it sounded really fascinating. Then uh, he told me about another piece of Craig's, Attack, Decay, Sustain, Release, which is a series of drawings or paintings that were visual artworks but intended to be realized as sort of graphic musical scores. Recently, Craig's been working on what sounds like an absolutely fascinating project involving a painting collaboration with a language-trained chimpanzee, and we'll dive into that a little bit later. And uh, Craig has had exhibitions throughout the U.S. and abroad, has been twice nominated for a Ford Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship in New Media. He's currently teaching drawing and painting at Georgia State. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, lots of interesting work to talk about. As I mentioned before, the, the project with the chimpanzee that we definitely want to get into, but I always like to, right up front of the show here, is to get a little bit of a background. And, and we already sort of t started talking to that uh, before we got started the show. So we can just dive into that. Tell us how you got started. Uh, I, I, I think just to, to give us a, uh, uh, you know, to fit within the time constraint, I, I'd like to sort of start with uh, the work that, you know, we're, that you mentioned in the introduction here. But just briefly, I... My background is I was trained as a printmaker and in, and, and in my undergraduate, uh, you know, my my younger years, uh, you know, that sort of process and uh, per perhaps collaboration uh, is something that carried over into the work that I'm doing now with media. But uh, but I think probably the best place to start that, you know, that I think the listeners could you know be, really begin to connect the dots a little easily is uh, about 15 years ago or so I. Uh, uh, you know, I was really wrapped up with taking photographs uh, every day with with just an old Instamatic camera and taking them to CVS and having them developed. And you know, and I was just thinking about it as a uh, not a, as an end, but just as a process, like a daily practice, sort of like the equivalent of a sketchbook. No real intention of uh, exhibiting them or turning them into a book or anything like that, but just just a daily practice. And then just ha you know, you know, just making me more kind of aware of my environment and sort of documenting my environment. And then, and then sometime after that, after I was really caught up with doing that, I, uh, I got a, a mini disc recorder and it came with a microphone and I, you know, pretty much first got it just because I thought I could put a ton of my music and listen to it. And, you know, just like probably what 99% of people do with their, uh, with the recording devices and, or uh, playback devices. Right. But, uh, but I kind of didn't take long. Just I started making connections between the microphone and the and the camera lens, and uh, and and I uh, you know was thinking like there are different sorts of lenses. You know there you know there's wide angle, there's microscopic, there's 
general lenses and et cetera, et cetera. And I started thinking that the same was true with the microphone, you know, that there's close microphones and there's, you know, there's shotgun mics that are narrow and there's omni mics for wide shots and et cetera, et cetera. So, so already it just kind of, it, it, I was able to kind of make that connection and, and the microphone felt familiar. And, and I started, uh, uh, doing us doing the same thing really with the microphone that I was doing with the camera and I I set up a an exercise um, where I would record for three o'clock or three minutes at three o'clock every day and no matter what I was doing I mean it, you know what time is it now it's almost three o'clock right now so yeah. if that was still doing that exercise I would just turn it on no matter what I was doing uh, I would just uh, uh, record it and just turn it off and you know just sort of the same thing not really an intention but just sort of a way of getting that technology and getting this this kind of thing into my daily practice and um, and then just you know then just see what would happen and maybe nothing happened and that would be okay too hmm. and because uh, I I tend my, my work tends to value uh, the process over the product it kind of possibilities over results are sort of a, a way that I, I sort of work uh, and it kind of have always worked hmm. and and then one day uh, at at school, when I, I teach at Georgia State, you know, mostly drawing classes, it was three o'clock, classes started at two thirty, and the students were drawing, and it was these kinds of marks going on all over the place. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And then, uh, and then, sort of a, a light bulb kind of went off in my head. Is just like one of those kinds of things that we're lucky to have happen to us once in a lifetime, you know. Um, right. And you know, when it's kind of on our terms, and right. and, uh, and and you know, you kind of throw yourself into a circumstance like this, and 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 so I started just thinking, like, wow, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to uh, to hear what Picasso sounded like compared to Cezanne, or Cezanne compared to Raphael, and uh, you know, so I just started, you know, it just opened up a floodgate and I started, you know, recording my friends and going to New York, recording artists there and children, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I drew the, uh, I was drawing the conclusion that, you know, the, the audio artifact, the sound of, of marks, you know, and that might, whether that's drawing or whether that's signatures or whatever tend to be as unique as the, uh, as as the as the as the visual part, and so when we think of a signature, we think of a drawing as drawn. You know that there there are there are individual characteristics uh, that that occur visually. But then I started thinking that well maybe that this this happens you know on the oral level at this as well, and so the first sort of leg of the pro project began by by almost like an art historian or an archivist. I, you know, I spent a lot of time just recording people because I was also just beginning my pursuit with working with, uh, uh, you know, uh, sequencers and digital things. I started out with digital performer and then uh, uh, I, I worked with that for a long time. So it was exciting because I had this unique project. I'm not, a, I'm not a musician. And I, I started working with this technology just because, you know, I, I like playing around with audio in the ways that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, currently I'm, I'm uh, all Ableton all the time, but that's another story. Um, but uh, but so so it kind of you know it, it it sort of acted twofold. It got me kind of immersed in a new technology, 
you know, so I, I had a real purpose for working with it. And then, and then that, but having that real purpose and learning and discovering things that could happen with, with the digital end allowed, kept me excited about, you know, the, uh, the, the, the other end, the front end where I'm actually recording. So, so those two things kind of worked in tandem and, and I don't know how long it was, but it was, it was, it was a period, maybe over a year or two, I was working with collecting and doing all these, you know, it's mainly making the boards out of just, just regular drawing boards and, and then, um, you know, putting contact mics in them. Yeah. So I, just, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just saying, I, I've always been really interested in that sound of drawing. And when I was in grad school, I tried to make a little piece recording the sound of writing and, and, uh, didn't really couldn't really go anywhere with it i i couldn't come up with something uh nearly as uh, as interesting as what you're doing of course but uh but i've i've always been fascinated in that and i, I want to come back to something that you said earlier because i i found that it really resonated with me and it's uh, you said your work is sometimes or maybe all the time process over product mm-hmm. and and i think that's a really interesting concept because it's almost exactly the way I think about my musical practice and the way that I teach students, it's, it's really the, the process that's, that's more important than, than the end product. And what you learn by going through the process at the end product doesn't matter as much, you know? And so I don't know if that's a a direct analogy to, to your work, but it definitely hit a, hit a button for me. So I I just, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, it's just, it's just a shift in attitude that, you know, I think, and maybe it's because, you know, you know, the, the corporate world runs so much of our lives that, you know, they're, they're just, you know, it, 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 what's built in is the bottom line and the, and like I said, the results over possibilities, you know, they don't have time and time is money and all that to, uh, to, to, you know, to, to waste. And, but, but I just think that when you're, when you value and you value and you, you put ahead the process over the product, I, I feel like, you're working more organically. You're not. You're not working almost in a, in an illustrative or or a, an editorial or a contrived sort of mode. But you're actually, you know, drifting away and, and you know, you know, you're not kind of in the known area. My one of my uh, early teachers had this sort of saying. He said the journey begins. He was a boat builder. Uh, he's but the journey begins when you can't see land anymore. And I mean, I think that's what the what what throwing yourself into the process kinds of means. You're not really preoccupied with the result. You're not focused on kind of an end thing. I, 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 I sort of make the analogy sometimes. It's the difference between illustration and poet poetry. You know, so so like when you when you're just preoccupied with, uh, you know, you know the product. You're sort of dealing illustrating. You're kind of dealing with something you already know that's there, and you're just trying to kind of spit it out. Yeah, where where, you, where you're dealing with poetry and process, you're you're kind of in a place where you don't really know, and and and, and the re, and what ends up resulting, you know, the viewer whoever encounters the work, you know, they may encounter it one one time one year and ten years later the piece will mean something totally different, and yeah. it's because that process was valued, and I think that's to to me what uh, separates, and, and that's true in whether you're talking about painting or music or or writing or, or anything, I think. Yeah, and I've, ta- I've talked about this concept before on a, on a previous episode where we were talking about art versus craft. And, and, and in music, it's exactly, you've, you've articulated it exactly as I, as I have before, which is the craftsman knows the end product, 
the artist does not necessarily know the end product. And and to mm. me that's the to me that's really the definition right there, the the difference between the two. And in music, you know, the craftsperson might be someone like the orchestral musician who's recreating a repertoire, you know, over right. and over again. Um, right. and that's craft. Whereas, you know, someone who's creating new pieces like a composer would be uh, more on the artistic side of things. So mm-hmm. uh, at any rate, uh, th- it's an, it's an interesting concept. And I feel like that, that's an important, well, that's an important well, we one. Saw in the, we saw in the, the middle of the 20 or the early part of the 20th century with the Bauhaus, where there was an attempt to, to merge those two things, to have artists and artisans working together. Yep. And, you know, where, where you take the skills of, of an artisan and sort of the, the vision of artists and you kind of have the best of, of both worlds. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so that, that had a big impact in every aspect of art and really still does. Mm. And, it, and incidentally, the Bauhaus came from kindergarten. So, you know, and that, 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 that is a fact mm. that, that uh, many of the ideas of the Bauhaus came from uh, Froebel's uh, research and uh, development of, of, of child development. Wow. Great. So talk about absolute freedom. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Well, we could we could talk about this stuff at length. Yeah, um, uh, maybe it's time to jump in and, and talk hear about some of your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think people will be really interested to hear about this collaboration with the chimpanzee. And I understand Panzi was the name of the this this chimpanzee, and I understand that uh, the chimp has passed, like in yeah. the last year or so. Almost a year to the day. It was February eighth, uh, this time last year. Okay, and and this was at the Language Research Center in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you got started with this project, and we'll we'll get into that. Well, it, I have to sort of start uh, to answer that question by digressing a little bit. Okay. Because the the second part of the drawing the sound drawing part uh, was kind of getting tired of the arch- the archivalness of it. I felt like I was an art historian and that really wasn't me. And I was frustrated that I couldn't bring this into the studio outside of just documenting and, you know, and showing that, okay, well, this is, this is different. That's different. But, but how did that, how could you really apply that to the studio practice? And, and, and for me, that's one of the biggest problems I've, that I've encountered with technology is it's either, you know, stuck in, you know, the graphic design department or maybe photography or, or its own kind of, you know, its own kind of discrete entity, but it doesn't interface very well with the traditional uh, sort of materials and sort of in traditional practice. And so that was frustrating to me. And I, and, and so what one, uh, I, I was doing these drawings with some of my colleagues in, in, in cemeteries and we would listen to, to uh, scrambled signals on shortwave radio in cemeteries with the idea, you know, that the dead were, you know, changing, you know, like electronic voice phenomenon. So the idea kind of conceptually is this space, this dead air, so to speak, was controlling what you were hearing. And then you and that and those sounds were were controlling your hand, you know, what you were drawing. Wow. And so so that experiment was also, you know, I was I was doing that and that was kind of an outside studio practice. And one time, my colleagues who drew it, we went camping one one uh, uh, day up in uh, North Georgia, and brought the shortwave radio, brought the uh, 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 brought the drawing boards. I had a battery operated uh, uh, um, mixer, et cetera, et cetera. So there were maybe four or five of us, and I brought I had this set of Chinese flashcards. And so I don't know how it happened, but I I was just, I just I thought 
like, what would happen if one person's drawing this flashcard and then the other person is just listening to the person draw the flashcard? And, and so, uh, and we tried this, and so for about 20 minutes, we just had a time constraint of 20 minutes. So a person was drawing, I think they were actually just a set of trees. And so they were drawing the trees, and we, the rest of us were following along with our hands, just listening to that person draw. And then the results were astounding, that the, the persons just listening to the person draw the trees were very accurate, very much looked like the trees. So there's this kind of hmm. quasi-telepathy that happened. Wow. So it was a way to kind of that that sort of morph from the cemetery things, and then the other things I was doing with the, uh, you know, the archival drawing thing. So, so that's where the whole project drawing voices. That's where that came from. That that's where that why I call the you know ba- you know my general project drawing voices, mm-hmm. and so I experimented with that for for you know and I'm still off and on doing it, but and and inserted that into the classroom, and, and you know like that was sort of the answer. Like this is how you can bring technology into the classroom, still be drawing, still be doing what you're doing, but have this kind of technology uh, augment what you're doing and not alienate uh, you know what you're doing uh, through through technology. So so that in. You know, I was doing stuff with writing and, 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 you know, like the scrambled signals and all this kind of stuff that, uh, that I was, was interested in and, and still am interested in. But, uh, but one day, I, you know, again, just all this kind of serendipity and just coincidence, chance or whatever you want to call it. But just one day I was uh, getting up uh, and uh, the, the Georgia State uh, flash page came on in a, or splash page and, and I, uh, I opened it and, and, and on the splash page, it was, t- it started using some of my keywords, you know, vocoders, scrambled signals, language, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then the last word, chimpanzees. I'm like, wow, well, that's interesting. I got to follow up on this. And, and so what, what they were, uh, uh, doing in, in his, this research was, was, uh, spearheaded by, by, uh, uh, the late, uh, Michael Oren, who, um, what he was interested in was exploring uh, vocoders. I don't know if is it worth explaining what a vocoder is, or should I just I, I, assume our could, audience knows? Well, if you could, if you could just say briefly what it is. Well, a vocoder, like like probably what commonly people kind of know what it sounds like is is sort of this auto tuning kind of robotic sound. They've used a lot of it in the '70s, but the original uh, use for it was uh in the in world war ii where spy signals were sent from you know german u-boats and uh they were trying to decipher the signal over the you know kind of the the scrambled airwaves and things and so this was a this was a piece of equipment that has uh, two inputs for modulation so one input uh the uh, scrambled signal uh the undecipherable signal goes in and the other uh uh channel a sine wave to help articulate, and so you can kind of understand this, you know, that that scrambled signal. I see. Okay. And and so what, uh, so what they were doing, they were using vocoders, and and what they were trying to do was to prove that the the chimps could actually understand the word, and not just like a command like you give your dog, you know, like the caretake, you know, how your dog kind of knows, you know, when it's time to go out or when it's mm-hmm. time for a treat. They were trying to disprove that, that they actually understood the word. So they would take the word and modify it and break it down to you know, almost a gestalt and, and see if the chimps could still understand it. Uh, 
and uh, and they they found that they could. So that was their that was their sort of intention. And so my intention was to you know just to take what I was doing with the the human primates and and try to see what would happen with the non-human primates. And uh, and so one of the things that you have to that I learned early on and it's, and it it continues to prove uh, uh, true is that you just that they're they just do things that are absolutely sometimes the opposite of what you think they're going to do. Hmm. So, so what I just, what, what you have to learn or what I have to learn or what, you know, I think anybody that works with, with the chimps is that they're just running the show. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so I had my ideas and early on, it was just, it was just, uh, foisted early on. And one of the things that I got really turned on to was, uh, Pansy had this propensity to write, so she, you know, she writes on lines. I, you know, typically she would write with uh, on either graph paper, musical score paper, or, or uh, uh, just handwritten, you know, you know, just regular note paper. And I got really interested in that, this sort of uh, alien language, or you know, just curious why she did it. You know, the, the some some of the marks were regular, and and I've always been interested in graphic scores and alternative scores, and and so there was just all sorts of of implications of, you know, artists and poets and musicians that I was interested in that, that here's this, here's this non-human entity who just kind of summed it all up for me. So, so, so that took on a a really large bulk of my work for the last three years where, you know, I'm kind of approaching her writings like you would learn any other language by, you know, just repeating and repeating, copying, copying. I had a show in, in um, May called The Primate's Notebook, which was, you know, the, the entire gallery, it was at White Space Gallery here in, here in uh, Atlanta. And the entire gallery was filled with just one little tiny uh, uh, page that she had done. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I could have filled the gallery twice with just, a, you know, just the work that I produced from just that one uh, small, small uh a scrap that she had had written on and I have lots and lots. So, I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of material uh, to work from, but I also took it into other places. I took it into, I worked with a local poet, James Sanders, who's in the Atlanta poet uh, group. And they, they do a lot of uh, text sound poetry, which I'm really interested in. And I kind of couch a lot of my work in under that sort of heading text sound poetry. Uh, it was, uh, you, you sort of, I think it was, uh, the the uh, Feilingen group from Sweden uh, coined that with Sten Hansen and um, or Oke Hodel and some of those guys, um, but uh, where you're working with phonemes and uh, playing with language, sort of stemmed out of uh, or, or grew out of or evolved from Kurt Schwitter's or Sonata, some mm-hmm. of the Dada books and things like that. Yeah, of course. But but. Uh, um, but what we we did, uh, James uh, worked with him, and he 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 uh, put together a really cool index where he he, he took all the uh, all the uh, characters from that from that writing that I did for the show and and broke them down and and assigned uh, uh, phonemes to them and you know and and wrote how to pronounce them and so we created a uh, a prescriptive uh, score with with the the the, uh, the characters. And the interpretation of the characters, and then you know perfor- did a performance at uh, at White Space, hmm. and then within the within the you know the gallery exhibition, and then and then w- one of the other things that happened uh, within the uh, within the exhibition was at the end on the solstice, June twenty first, 
was the end of the show. Um, we had a, a, I have a friend who's, who's a, a major master chef and, uh, uh, he, he's cooked all over the world and the top places in Atlanta. And, uh, he, he and I collaborated on a, uh, you know, a five course gourmet dinner and the whole, all the, all the uh, food was, was made from the diet of the chimps, what the chimps eat. Oh, wow. I saw that online. Mm -hmm. Um, there were photographs of this on one of the websites that you had, um, pointed mm -hmm. me to one thing that I want to make sure and mention now is, uh, uh, all of this work is documented or a lot of it is documented on your website, drawing, mm -hmm. drawingvoices.com. So I just wanted to make sure and mention that as people yeah. are listening, they may want right. to go and explore, uh, some of these, um, this whole body of work with the chimpanzee writing and, and some of your other, uh, work as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the notebooks, uh, th this one is particularly interesting to me in that you're, this is what you were describing, uh, sort of over and over reproducing these marks that, uh, pansy had made and sort of, but you're sort of, uh, blowing them up, right. Making them larger. And yeah. Yeah. In some cases, and you know, some of that attitude is, is exploring like, you know, when you have when you see a word, it's written down. That word resonates in a in a way that's different than if it's made out of neon, or if it's if it's written with a, a Japanese uh, brush. You know, that, so mm -hmm. it can be the same word, but depending on how it's presented or the scale, the size, it it resonates in a different way. So I was exploring uh, putting her characters into all sorts of different contexts and frames, just like we do any other language. So, so, you know, like a monk writing the word, you know, in an illuminated manuscript is much different resonance than when it was printed on the Gutenberg press. So I have a question about the, the language that Pansy learned. Um, this was a, a language that was invented. How? Uh, there, there's a scientist named uh, Dwayne Rumbaugh, and then uh, I think then and I'm I mean, I'm I may not be totally accurate with the timeline with this, so, so forgive me if uh, you might you get a phone call or anything. But I'll try to be as careful and as vague as possible. But okay. Dwayne Dwayne Rumbaugh in the uh, I believe late 60s, early 70s, and then later his wife uh, helped with a lot of this research. Uh, Sue Sue Savage Rumbaugh or his ex-wife, I don't. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, the, he developed a, uh, and then later I think others others contributed to this to a system of symbols called lexigrams. Okay. And uh, and yet, like I said, we may want to check our facts on this. Just it's a, probably a Wikipedia. I don't want to like like who who invented this kind of stuff. So so just so f forgive me. We may just want to knock the word knock these names out altogether. But um, but he. Uh, it was a system of just sort of arbitrary symbols. So just circles and triangles and X's and, you know, just, just simple shapes. And each one of them meant something. So they were color. So they one might mean an apple or one might be the name of a caretaker. Sometimes they were abstract words like care or like chase or care or something like this. And, and so there, there ended up being three sets of 128. And then I think some numbers too. Uh, and, and so the chimps and not just pansy, there's three others, the other three I'm working with currently, uh, you know, if that, that's how they communicate with the caretakers and vice versa. And, and so, um, you know, I want an apple, I push to an apple. I want to go outside. I push to, I want to go outside, but then, 
then you know depending on the trials that the uh, the caretakers are involved in that's how they you know set up some of their uh you know their their experiments with them so okay. so like like the 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 uh, scientists i'm working with very closely charles mensel he's really interested in memory and recall and you know can they in projection can they project into the future you know, recall the past and how, how far in the past and how far into the future and all this kind of, you know, th and things that, that are, are facilitated that through, through the lexigram uh, keyboard. And so all the, so, so, so they're trained through these, through these symbols. Uh, li like a lot of people think of Coco with the hand, hand gestures and things, but yeah, but with the sign these, language, right. Right. With the, the sign language, yeah. but, but, but uh, th these guys are, and are, you know, done with the lexigrams. And so there, there's sort of a, a, you know, a complex history. And, and the thing with working with the chimps is there's so many complex strata with, with, the, with the history of the scientists, the, the relationship between the scientists and the caretakers and things that, that j just my little thing that, that, I'm, that I do, I, it's hard enough to keep that in, in my brain you know, it's straight. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, but it's really, really fascinating uh, things. I mean, you know, Franz DeWall, who is at, is at uh, Emory. Uh, a lot of people know his work. Um, he has a Ted talk on TV and, or on, uh, on the internet. And uh, he, he's part of the Yerkes program. And most people are familiar with that program. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the apes that uh, Georgia state, it, they inherited them from the from the Yerkes program. So, so um, you mentioned to me that these uh, that some of these things were done on music score paper. Are is anyone uh, sort of interpreting these things musically? Some of these uh, markings. Um, Has anybody tried that? Well, or? I we tried. Uh, you know, there was a project. It 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 sort of uh, it it fell apart a little bit just through a lot of different complexities. We kind of got some folks off the ground and uh i don't know do, do you know who andrew lyles is have you uh, ever heard of him? no i haven't uh he's a he's a like he's part of the united dairies uh group uh you know like nurse with wound and steve stapleton and current 93 and those guys from the you know they're still making work but a real powerful force in experimental music uh uh but but he actually did he, he he was invited and contributed one piece but it's just one of those things the project never got fully realized so it's just kind of sitting there in a in an archive right now but uh, but I'm resurrecting that again um, and uh, so so I, uh, I what I really like to do is is to uh, make some sort of uh, LP I mean I, I I'm I'm really embracing uh, LP and I'm em embracing uh, not making things so ex easily accessible uh, anymore because I just feel like it it uh, diminishes the you know the the work and and an LP requires dedicated listening it requires an effort so you're serious about doing it you're not just you know throwing it on the shuffle in your iPod and yeah. you know just you know it comes up so but I also like it as as can I think people who are serious about you know sounds and music are you know listen to vinyl. You know, I mean, see, I, I, I think that CDs are essentially, uh, you know, business cards anymore. You know, like yeah. you just, you know, and, and, and MP3s are, are even more invisible and ridiculous. There's nothing substantial to it. So, well, one interesting uh, sort of side note here, since we're on this topic, is that, uh, 
you know, I recently had the experience of list, of having to review, because uh, I do reviews for Percussive Notes magazine, uh, like uh, CD uh, record reviews. And I had I had this uh, one record that came in, and it was an LP, and um, and it had been a long time since I'd listened to vinyl, and this was probably a couple years ago. And um, anyway, I had to take this thing because I didn't have an LP player at the time, and so I t- had to take it to the library, and I had the whole experience of taking the record out, putting it on the turntable, you know, like I did when I was a kid, uh, because I had a huge record collection when I was a kid, and um, you know, putting pretty on cool. The- it, pretty cool, isn't it? Well, here's the thing that <laughs> here's the thing that um, fascinated me is I had forgotten the depth of analog. I'd forgotten the depth of that that signal, you know, because the the digital signal is compressed, mm-hmm. and I had gotten so used to the flat, clean sound right. of, of digital that I had just forgotten how uh, big and round uh, the sound of analog recording is. So I had a great experience doing that, you know, and it sort of rekindled this idea that, man, um, LP should definitely make a comeback. And and it sort of has in sort of hipster culture, you know, uh, a lot of uh, bands are now putting out their records on LPs and it's yeah. it's kind of making a resurgence. But I think the point that you're making is that to listen to a record is uh, a whole experience, you know, I think that's the key thing that I think that I took away from what you were saying, which is that, you know, you don't just throw it, as you said, in the shuffle on your iPod. It's you have to carefully take the record out. You've got the program well, notes well, to look at and the, all the design elements that go into right. that. Right. And, 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 and it's not just the sound that's big. The whole thing is big. Yeah. The, the <laughs> yeah. reading is big. The physical artifact is big. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it, you know, you start, you get confronted with it. And, yeah. uh, and and the others, you know, the other things are just you know kind of conveniences, and 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 they they are thin, and and the sound is compromised, and all those kinds of things. But yeah. but uh, I mean, I don't know, you know, if, if you ever made a visit to Forced Exposure uh, website, I, I I think if you if you think that vinyl is dead. Uh, that would probably change your mind because I, I there's there, there's just so much new stuff uh, being uh, pumped out on a weekly basis, and there's so much really great old stuff that uh, they're resurrecting. That uh, Doxy label from uh, from Russia is just fantastic. They're just blowing out some of the most amazing jazz stuff that you wish you had your hands on, and stuff you didn't know you wish you had your hands on. <laughs> and I, I just got the uh, I think it was a five LP set of Alfred Hitchcock, you know, with uh, uh, Bernard uh, Herman. Bernard Herman, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. His whole set, and the 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 that Doxy, I think, uh, I think it's Doxy's doing the uh, the Christoph Komoda. They're doing a one LP at a time, so there's this whole series they're they're tipping out, and you know, it, it's exciting. And uh, wow. and like I said, I you know, I I, I would just you know if and when you know this project happens i i i'm i'm trying to get it to i certainly want it to 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 exist on on lp yeah yeah terrific well um let's maybe change uh, directions a little bit and talk about this new project that you've started or are going to be starting with the artist john roach uh it's called siren earthquake radio and my understanding is that it, it's a, a very large-scale project that explores environment, culture, history of this particular island, Kefalonia, in Greece. 
sounds like a huge and multi-dimensional thing. Uh, can you maybe talk about that project and how it came about? Yeah, this is uh, I think the fourth year that I've that I've gone there. My wife uh, and I have gone there. Uh, her name's Pamela Longobardi. She's uh, she's an artist uh, in town as well. Uh, we teach together at Georgia State, and she's really involved with uh, plastic marine debris, and she's had a really big in- involvement there as well. So uh, she, so we've been going there together, and I've been, I've done a couple of performances and worked with local artists there. And so, so we've been going, you know, together uh, for the last, I think, four years. This might be the, either the fourth or fifth one coming up, and uh, I've been. I've been doing things, you know, with local artists, uh, collaborating and doing performances there. I've had one or two exhibitions there as well. And, uh, and so, but this time it, it is going to be quite a bit, uh, like a larger scale because, you know, it's going to be a longer period of time. And then I'm collaborating with John who I've done some things before with, uh, he, he, he's at Parsons and he's really wrapped up in sound. So we have a, I think a similar kind of sensibility and, and, uh, and temperament when it comes to this kind of stuff, but, uh, it's going to, um, sort of be in, at, at, I guess, three main pillars. We're doing a piece dealing with feedback, uh, in the Melisani caves, which are these ca- this cave that uh, it is has water in it, and these boats go through it, and we're going to be working with uh, uh, sort of a feedback piece where uh, the people going on the boats will have a microphone. You know, there'll be a microphone on the boat, and when they make their passages, uh, they will they will uh, pass through uh, speakers that are going to be. Uh, you know, emitting feedback, and we'll manipulate those things in real time. And there'll probably be a singer, uh, vocalist, uh, uh, harmonizing with some of this. And there's like an island within this, within the middle of this cave, where the you know the the speakers and the singer will reside. Hmm. And then the second part, I, I last year I did a performance with a uh, a bazooki player. I'm really into the rimbetica music from Greece and. He was really in tune with that too. So he uh, he he also made his own um, dulcimer as well. So we had one set where we 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 uh, I worked with uh, uh, Greek two Greek poets, and I was working with you know the Greek memory. So they were reciting poetry from memory while they had an IBVA brainwave uh, brain machine uh, for biofeedback that was uh, producing their brainwaves for the visual. Uh, while they were, while the bazooki player was improvising with them, that now, was one set. The yeah. bazooki, uh, tell us what what that is exactly. Uh, I guess it's sort of the Greek answer to the the says or the guitar. Okay. Uh, the okay. lute, you know, it's string a string. Instrument. Yeah, it's a stringed yeah. instrument. Um, and um, um, and so and then the other set was with the dulcimer and uh, and I have. And, and I was trying to think about, you know, one thing about Greece is it's there's insects, it's windy, it's hot, and and I and I built I built some Aeolian harps, uh, basically they're just long strings uh, stretched from the top of the center to the to the ground. But the Aeolian harp is it just plays itself, you know, it's yeah. a wind harp, a wind harp, right? Right, right, right. So so probably some bazooki 
uh, maker a long time ago figured it out. They were probably being stored in his shed, and the wind was just playing them. And like, well, why not? You know, <laughs> you know, you don't even need a, or or this, you know, the gods came in and were playing it or something. But, so tell uh, me how tell me how you chose this. Uh, you said you'd visited this island before, but how did it? How did that come about? Uh, my wife was Pam was uh, was uh, selected to to do a residency there, oh, okay. so I sort of went along for the ride the first time, and then helped her out uh, with some of the production. Uh, she, well, I think I I, I get them mixed up because we've been there so many times. But I think what I did was she works with plastic that's found in the ocean, and I and I and I was making some of these mooring balls into uh, resonators. Uh, and then there was sound coming through the resonators, through the you know mooring balls in the in the space. Hmm. Uh, wow. So so that that was a start starting point. But then I I hit it off really well with uh, with the woman who runs it. And so you know we're just basically part of the you know we're all kind of part of the family. So we you know it's kind of become our second home in a way. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like a fascinating project and a very large scale one at that. So. <laughs> Well, well, the other thing I was going, I, I got a little bit sidetracked from the previous year, but with John and I, we're, we're going to be doing, we're going to be expanding the Aeolian harps. He, he works with, makes these instruments out of rubber bands. And so we're going to be making an Aeolian harp out of rubber, uh, rubber bands as well. We're going to do this one uh, uh, in a wind, wind turbine, but, but we're going to be high up on a hill. We're going to be doing an improvisation up there with the Aeolian harps and the sounds of the turbines and things like that wow. as well. So is this going to be documented on recording as well? Yeah, or? We're, we're documenting it. Uh, we're going to document it recording. We're actually going to try to uh, put out an LP of this. We're going to be doing some some general field recording stuff. Uh, and, and then we're going to kind of do uh, a, a version of my three minutes for th- at three o'clock thing and that will be something daily that will come on the the radio and we will you know we'll we'll have some interview things on the radio we're also doing a piece uh, uh, i forgot th- probably the biggest piece that we're doing because Kefalon is very prone to earthquakes and there's been some really terrible uh, earthquakes but we're doing some uh some things based on off seismographs we're using them as uh, graphic scores for improvisation amazing sounds like a great project craig yeah, I think so. We're we're really exciting. There's a lot of been a lot of planning uh, prior, and so, uh, but I I think yeah, I think it's going to be pretty exciting. Well, uh, it's about that time to wrap up and um, to close the show. I always like to get perspective on the creative life and how one lives and sustains a creative life. So perhaps you might talk about that, or perhaps you might have advice for those who are set on a, on a creative life and a career in the creative arts. Anything that you'd like to say about that to wrap up would be great. Well, it, you know, it sounds like the question sounds like it, it might be inviting the obvious, like how you sort of sustain yourself financially. And, you know, for me, that, that thing is... I teach and I, I think of my teaching is my art practice. My art practice is my teaching that, that, that line is blurred. I, I don't, you know, the things I do in the classroom, I do in my studio practice, things I do in the studio, I bring to, I bring into the classroom. And so, I mean, like from the f- financial pragmatic sense that that's the way I do it. But, but for me, you know, the, the kind of the broader sort of answer to the question is, is that, is a couple of things. It's, it's an attitudinal thing. Is one is I I believe, and I try to instill that art is a conversation. It's not a competition. 
You're, it's about sort of en entering and adding to the conversation that uh, you know has has persisted through you know history through humanity, and uh, and so that sort of daily practice, that sort of example, three minutes at three o'clock, not having that sort of thing at the end of the day, but but the but the main thing that you embrace is that the way you have art is to make life worthwhile. It's not to be it's not to be famous. It's not like you're only successful if you're in a museum or if you're being written about or talked about, but it's about making life worthwhile. And that could be your life or making someone else's life worthwhile. And that's why, the, you know, the, there's this kind of light book written um, many years ago, several years ago called Class, where they were comparing how the rich and the poor have are more similar than the middle class. The rich, if they get a if they get a, a expensive Persian tapestry, will throw it on the floor and walk on it. And it's the same as a poor person. And I think that kind of thing is true with art. Like you, that that a really wealthy person, that's one of the first things they want to do with their money is find something for the wall. In a poor person, they need it to to sort of keep their kind of uh, identity and their life afloat. And I mean, I think. You know that that's really the the, the thing uh, about you know addressing your question. It's really uh, you know it's a it's very much a mental state. It's very much a mental attitude about the way you think of art. Uh, I want to ask you one more thing, which is uh, something that I read in um, on one of these websites. Uh, it was a series of statements, and one of this is is near the bottom of these series of statements. And one of the things you said was. The greatest mistake I've made as, huh. as an artist, you know, you know where it's coming. The greatest yeah. mistake I've made as an artist was choosing the lunatic fringe as my primary audience. <laughs> and then the next statement says, the most defining and significant choice I have made as an artist was choosing the lunatic fringe as my primary audience. Yeah. What, what does that phrase lunatic fringe mean to you? I think just, just people are that, that are way out there, you know, that that's who kind of my audience is. That's who I, you know, you know, it's a little bit of a, a carryover from what you're talking about is, uh, you know, like, like how, how do you kind of sustain yourself in a creative sphere? I, mean, I think one of the things is defining your audience is one of the things that I tell the students all the time is the first step in doing that is to, is to get your parents, their voices out of your head. That's that's the worst. The surrealist used to say, "Slap your mother" or something like that, and that's that's really a big thing. Is how you get your audience into you know open up into a different place where you're making art. Somebody else is looking uh, at your work, and you're kind of w thinking about, well, what would they think if they saw this piece? Or you're kind of appealing to them rather than just the familiar, the familial. And uh, I mean, I I think you know what what that sort of means is a lot of the choices a lot of the work that i pursue doesn't have a lot of cultural support in other words you know monetary support the, the kind of work that i'm talking about is is difficult to find you know an audience that gets it or a place that oh yeah we'll we'll put this in a you know in a high profile museum or a collection because you know because it's esoteric and it's it's it kind of resides under the under the shelf a little bit but but I just I feel that, that that that's really where art is, you know, and the artists that I look at, they, they all kind of have the same the same type of story. And and so so, yeah, on one hand, the, the regret part, it, it can be kind of a lonely place and, and you and you can be in a place where you're just scratching your head. You know what's going on? You know, isn't anybody listening? But but then on the other hand, it's like the other part, the, the, the last uh, entry of that the, is that 
there's no place really I'd rather be, you know, that, 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 it, that that's what's kept me stimulated. That's what's kept me moving along. And, uh, the, in that part, I have no, I have no regrets. Craig, thank you so much for being on the yeah. show. Uh, lots to digest here, and uh, folks can go check out your website, drawingvoices.com, and learn more about everything that you have going on. Thanks so much for being on the show. Okay, John. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.